In the first Mainz retreat, uh, the Buddha spent with the Panchavagya, his first five disciples. He trained them very intensively. Ideal conditions, the five persons only in sharing the Buddha and he can give them uh, full attention, looking into their mind, telling them exactly what to do, how to meditate, how to think, how not to think, how to perceive, how not to perceive, what to abandon and what to uh, establish the mind in. And after doing that, for an extended period, uh, the Buddha used his special Tathagatabala, the special powers of a Buddha, to look deep into their heart. And that is a unique ability of the Buddha to see the maturity of the faculties, the spiritual faculties. And he recognized at a certain stage of training that they were now mature enough in their faith, sadha, in their energy, in their mindfulness, in particular in samadhi and wisdom, that they would be able to fully comprehend the Dhamma. And then the Buddha would teach what is known as his second formal discourse, which is the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the Sutta on the characteristic of not-self. And all five Panchavagya attained full Nibbana while listening to that discourse. So it is a powerful one. It is one which is uh, sufficient for someone with uh, spiritual faculties mature enough to completely comprehend not-self, to completely comprehend dependent origination for noble truth, to let go of all clinging attachment and craving, to abandon the asavas, the corruptions, the outflows of the mind, and to realize Nibbana, Avahant. And that sort of is also a great opportunity to talk about the topic of not-self, because it often creates quite a bit of confusion. Are you all 100% clear, even intellectually, not-self, how that works and what that means? That's one of the maybe most challenging teachings of the Buddha, and also a hallmark of his teaching. I'm not aware that any other religion would teach that quite the way the Buddha would teach not-self. First thing first, it is not self, it is not no self. Many people are under the misconception that the Buddha would teach that there is no self. Is that maybe what you have heard? The Buddha's teaching is there is no self? And many people perceive it like that, and then I usually ask them, can you please show me that? We have a very extensive record of the Buddha's teaching in the Pali Canon, very faithfully preserved, uh, thousands of suttas. Where did he ever say there is, not, there is no self? What he would say, all dhammas are not self. For some that may sound like hair splitting, there is actually a difference to say there is no self. 
or to say that all phenomena are not safe or something very specific, you know, the body is not safe or feeling is not safe. Now this is what the Buddha would say. So if it's a very confusing or complex or not so easy to understand topic, I always recommend to go back to what did the Buddha teach himself. Actually, uh, also for not so complicated topics, I think that's an excellent approach. But particularly in, in a matter like that, you know, there is already some confusion where you may encounter different teachings. Now go back to the direct word of the Buddha himself. Now how did he explain that himself? And this discourse is an excellent one. And one line of argument I really like because I feel you know, even nowadays we can immediately relate to that. As uh, when the Buddha now asked these monks, Tonging Manyata Bhikkhavi, what do you think, monks? What's your opinion on that? Now, how do you see that? Rupang Nichangva Anichangvati is form permanent or impermanent. The form, rupa, is obviously, for example, you know, this physical body, whereas in all other you know, external forms, you know, what, you, what you see or can touch, material as well as other bodies. Um, but particularly important is the form in the sense of our bodily form. And the thing that the answer it's pretty obvious, no? what would the monks answer there? What would you answer? Is form permanent or impermanent? But this is exactly what the five monks are answering to the Buddha. Anichang Bhante. Now the Buddha continues. Yampana Nichang Dukhangvatang Sukhangvati. Something that is impermanent. Is that dukkha or is it sukha? Is it suffering or is it happiness? And here we have to keep in mind that dukkha in Pali can be translated as most common translation as suffering, but it's a very comprehensive concept of suffering. It doesn't only mean outright pain, let's say, Rupanga Nichang, they say when your mother dies, this bodily form of a parent manifests very strongly the impermanent nature. And your, your mother, for example, dies. And that is now outright painful. We all can immediately recognize now that is suffering. But the Buddha means it also in a very subtle way. Now you could translate now, as ultimately unsatisfactory, as unable to give you a perfect, lasting, eternal happiness. Now, that is the idea of dukkha there. Now, anything that is less than really perfect happiness has that aspect of dukkha. It is disappointing, it's ultimately disappointing, or maybe even outright painful. So that is what he is asking when he says, is it dukkha or sukkha? 
Is it in a really completely fulfilling true happiness? Or is it something ultimately disappointing? And naturally, you know, the monks answer again, uh, it is ultimately disappointing if it's impermanent. Now, how could something impermanent, like form or feeling or thoughts or conscious awareness, how could that ever give you the perfect happiness, everlasting, totally fulfilling happiness? Has that aspect of disappointment built in, inevitably? That's how the monks now are again in agreement, the Buddha is in agreement with the monks. And then comes now this really crucial next sentence. Yampana nichang dokang veparinama dhammam. So what do you think now? And there's something that is impermanent, ultimately disappointing, and of a nature and to change become otherwise kalang nutang samanupasitung etang mama eso hamasmi eso me atati is that suitable to regard as this is me I am that this is myself I am this this is mine this is myself is that suitable? Kalang nutang samanupasito. Is that a smart idea? <laughs> is that an, uh, appropriate? Is that beneficial? Is that helpful? And I like so much this whole thing, the kalang nutang samanupasitung, because it shows we are not talking about something which you can objectively decide. It's not an objective truth whether something is safe or not safe. Because what is happening that we regard something as safe. We make something ourselves, so to speak. We build up that delusion that something belongs to me, that I own it. We build up now that illusion that this is me, this is I. It's not something which is objectively existing or not existing. There's also the difference between this not safe and uh, no safe. Because it is created in our own mind, it's projected outside. And if we want to regard it as safe and me and mine, then obviously that is what's happening. But what the Buddha points out is that actually a good idea because this thing is disappointing, painful, can't really give you lasting happiness, is changing, impermanent, becoming otherwise. So is that actually a good idea not to regard that this is me, I am this, this is mine, this is myself? And the monks answer, no, no this is not a good idea, no. Because what will inevitably happen if you take something to be you, that is impermanent and disappointing. You will experience suffering and disappointment. Now we can see that, that with ownership. I mean, of course, you can 
buy a property. When like we, when we bought the Magibi in 2007, and then it gets uh, conveyancing, and the, the the lawyers and the contract, and then it gets put in the cadaster. And now no one is perceiving that this is yours now. But now ultimately nothing has really changed there. No? It's just the same trees and the wind is blowing and the rain is raining and the wallabies hopping around from one property to the next. No, one can easily see you know, that this is not something objectively existing. Whether someone's certain piece of land is someone's property or another person's property, but it's something which we are creating. And usually in society, um, you have kind of, kind of conventional agreement and that we agree and that we all have the same perception there. Although sometimes not. No? If, if sometimes you have to go to a lawsuit. I once met this monk in Bodhgaya and he had a plan, he wanted to start a retreat center there. But he told me it's so damn difficult to do that in Bihar. And he said, no, you buy a property you pay that and you get a nice contract and some registry in the cadaster. And over time you find out that there's half a dozen people who are all holding title to that property. And then you can try to fight that out in the courts of Bihar, who really is the owner. And of course, the ultimate reality is that there's no real owner anyhow. This is a conventional thing. And if the court agrees with your own conventional assumption that you are the owner, then society may accept it, but the court may come to a different conclusion. It was quite fascinating after German reunion, because in East Germany, socialists, they had expropriated many private properties and became owned by the state. So the people who owned a house, they lost that. And I was owned by the state. Sometimes they could live still there and maybe pay rent to the state. And someone else moves in. And that went on for some 35 years or something. And then came the reunion and it all became the West German law. And they turned it all back. So suddenly it belonged to the previous owner again. And the previous owner may have died or emigrated to America and then the heirs had inhabited it and then these people who had never any connection, they come back and they're fighting for it at the courts. And then the courts decide again it belongs to this person. And I can see you know, that even on the level of whole society and it just changes because it's a construct. It's not something that exists objectively. There's no objective self out there. There's something which we do in our mind to appropriate something, to regard it as mine, which you can call in English appropriation. That's why it's related to grasping, to clinging. Obviously, what I regard, what I see as I, me, mine, and self, I will hang on to, I will try to attach to it. So the Buddha just puts it out there. Is that a good idea? Kalang dutang samunupasitung. The kalang means suitable, appropriate, beneficial. 
samanupasitum ne to regard it like this. And the monks now immediately agree, no, it's not a good idea. Because they can clearly see it is changing, impermanent, unsatisfactory. So the moment I regard that as I, me, mine, there will be, I'm in trouble. I will end up with disappointment. Maybe you don't believe the Buddha, you don't believe the monks, then just try it out in your own life. We can usually see when we suffer, it is due to something which we regard it as I, me, or mine. This is why it's so painful when you lose a loved one, because it's my mother or my child or my spouse, my dog, my car which got crashed. This, this is a problem in everything. Just imagine you hear some brakes screeching and then the sound of someone crashing into a car really heavily at the car park. You might be worried that's your car, eh? the question. And then you rush out and then you see the question someone else has come. Big difference, eh? whether they crashed your car or someone else's. What's the big difference? No, there's nothing objectively different there. The other car may be even more expensive or nicer or bigger or whatever. But we don't have the attitude, now. my car. So we can uh, notice that relationship between suffering and the illusion of I, me, mine, the illusion of ownership, the illusion of safe. So the Buddha goes through all five groups of clinging, rupa, form, and then feeling. It's getting really close to home. Né? I mean, my, my pain and my suffering, what could be more my or my own than my pain and pleasure? As the same argument holds. Now, what do you think as you're feeling, whether it's a pleasant feeling? or painful feeling. Is that permanent or impermanent? Have you ever encountered a permanent pleasant feeling? Or permanent pain? Unchangingly there all the time? Sometimes it may feel like that if you're really down or if you're really over the moon so happy and it always feels it will be forever. But I think everyone here is probably old enough that you have noticed it's actually not the case. No feeling that can ever go forever. And so the monks agree again that there's, the feeling is impermanent. If it's impermanent, it can never give lasting happiness. This is why even pleasant feeling is dukkha. A pleasant feeling is suffering, not, not in the sense that while you feel it, you outright suffer. But while you feel it, it's already clear that it will come to an end at some stage. And what is the end of pleasant feeling? Very unpleasant, disappointment. 
always find that quite intriguing how one can get used to something nice and it doesn't do much anymore if you have some really nice chocolate or really uh, nice dragon veil, green tea from China, whatever, and there's something you really like. Once you get used to that, the, the feeling is not that strong anymore. But then if you go back to the really inferior product, you can't maintain this feeling you've become used to and is really suffering. The end of pleasure is usually suffering. So the monks agree that that's something impermanent like feeling that is ultimately disappointing. And now the Buddha uses the same argument. Something that is changing, impermanent, ultimately always disappointing like feelings. Is that a good idea? Is that smart to regard your feeling as yourself, as I, me and mine, my pain, I am in pain. Why is it always me who has to suffer so much? That's not a good idea. There's more pain and suffering. The same for perception, same for the will, intention, choice, and same for consciousness. Whatever you are aware of, or awareness and the conscious awareness and constantly changing. You look somewhere and, uh, and you have an eye consciousness and you see a form, you hear something that the bird's tweeting, you feel something in the body, you taste something, you smell something. The six forms of consciousness constantly arising, passing away. So how can that ever the last, it's all impermanent. If it's impermanent, it will be disappointing. Whatever beautiful awareness you have, and you're aware of something super beautiful, some attractive person, a great piece of art, some divine music, some three-star food, but ultimately it is gone. So is it a good idea not to even consciousness to regard that as I, me, mine, and self? And the monks answer no. So after they are all in agreement, the Buddha continues, the Tasmati Hibikavi, Yankinji Rupam, Atita Nagata Pachupanangna. Therefore, monks, whatever form, whether in the past, present, or in the future. In the past, you may have been fresh and young and pretty. Now we may be less <laughs> and older. In the future, it will be even worse. Until in the rebirth, and we may be young again. Now it doesn't really matter whether a year ago, or 10 years ago, or 100 lifetimes ago. Uh, next year, 100 years into the future, 10 lifetimes into the future, in whatever form. Achatang Vabahita internally in my own internal form or in external form, material or persons, 
Ulare Kangwa Sukumangwa, Kurs or Sattel, like uh, human bodies are a course with blood and bones and flesh and pus and vomit and I don't know what is in there, all this unpleasant stuff. Or whether it's a deva, a very subtle body, or even a Bahman, who is just a beautiful form of light, like like a fireworks or laser show or something like that. And there's this beautiful light appearance that would be very... Sukum are very refined, subtle. But it's still the same issue. Whether uh, inferior or superior, whether ugly like a cane toad, beautiful, cute like a koala, beautiful like a model, or ugly like an old, sick, dying person. All, All form. Duriva, Santikeva, whether white here or in other countries, continents, other planets, other galaxies, and it's always the same. The Sabang Rupang, whatever form, all form, this is not mine. This is not me. This is not myself. This is how it should be seen with proper wisdom. As it truly is, in accordance with reality. Seeing things as they truly are. I really like that. It's like a meditation mantra. Netang mama neso hamasmi na meso atati. Netang Mama, this is not mine. Neso Hamasmi, I am not this. This is not me. Nameso Atati, this is not myself. This can be used like a mantra. Can be really good if you have some big pain, big disappointment, just contemplating it. This is not me, this is not mine. I am not this, this is not myself. If a car really gets crashed, it's not my car. I am not my car. Car is not myself. If your dog dies on you, it's not me, it's not really my dog. It's not mine. I don't own that. Everything. Because the evang pasang bikavi sutava arisavako. The seeing thus, thus means with proper wisdom in accordance with reality as it truly is. Namely, not me, not mine, not myself. But the this noble disciple, Rupas Mimpi Nibindati, he will get disenchanted with form. This nibindati is really difficult to translate. A typical translation is disenchantment. But a little bit weak. Now the Pali is a little bit stronger than disenchantment. This is really, you could also say you're really, really sick of it or you're tired of it. You had enough of it. 
the problem is that these English terms usually all indicate a kind of aversion. Whereas Nibida is a turning away and are feeling tired of it and being disenchanted, and not connected with aversion or disliking, but connected with insight into the impermanent nature, into the disappointing nature. So it's in a very wholesome, very high emotion reside now of profound inside meditation. It is not that normally I'm sick of it, but disenchantment, turning away, being repulsed on an understanding that this is not me, not mine, this is all disappointing. One gets disenchanted with feeling and turns away and is repulsed, doesn't engage anymore and disengages from perception, intention, will, choice and consciousness. Nibindam viracati, one is disenchanted and developing disenchantment, the um, desire fades away, the dispassion is established. Viraga vimuchati, and from that dispassion, from that fading away of desire and lust, the heart is freed, is liberated, is released, is delivered. Now that is another full attainment of Nibbana. Navimuttasming, vimuttang itinyanangoti. And when the heart has been liberated, uh, the knowledge that the heart has been liberated is part of that experience and go together. It's impossible to fully realize the Dhamma, someone becoming an Avahant, but, but not knowing that it's all over now. That is part of that experience. Anyone who realizes Nibbana also knows that they have uh, realized Nibbana and that they are free from suffering and uh, rebirth and the continued round of existence and so on. Akina Janti Vositang Brahmacharyang Napadang Etatayati Pajanati. And that person going through this process seeing things as they truly are, as not me, not mine, not self, and then uh, being disenchanted, being disenchanted, becoming dispassioned, having the desire and lust fading away, from that fading away and that dispassion, uh, experiencing freedom and uh, the knowledge of their liberation, of their release, that person understands that the holy life has been lived, that the job has been done, the goal has been accomplished, and that there's no more coming to the state of being, there's no more rebirth. And while the Buddha was teaching the discourse we are just discussing, it actually happened, this thing the Buddha just described, seeing things as they truly are, not me, not mine, not safe. And then uh, turning away and being disenchanted from all five groups of clinging, form, feeling, perception, 
intention and consciousness, that they experience dispassion and based on that dispassion they experience the freedom release, the state of Nibbana, the extirpation of all defilements, the end of Dukkha. And they all became Abahans, their Asavas, Anupadaya, Asavi, Chitani, Vimuchang, Suti, from non clinging, the mental corruptions never uh, extirpated from their heart. So great, sort of very inspiring. I think they will, Ajahn Kantiko, I think, leads a chanting of that sutta at 1.30. It's an old chanting book, volume 2. We all got volume 2 chanting book. Anatta Lakana, the sutta and the non-self characteristic. Netang Mama. Neso amasmi na meso atati. Netang mama neso amasmi na meso atati. Netang mama neso amasmi na meso atati. I really like the Pali. Can you all remember what it means? Exactly. Netang mama, this is not mine. Neso amasmi, I am not this. Or this is not me. In English, you can say either. I am not this. I am not that. This is not me. Then me so atati. This is not myself. And that has to be applied to something very specific. That's the other big difference. If you just say there's no self, I mean, you're just stating this doctrinal opinion, boop. But to do that. What to do with it? What what does it mean? And if you go through an awful divorce, or if your mother dies on you, or if you lose your job, or you get diagnosed with cancer, and then someone says, "There is no self." Yeah, I mean, so what? I mean, what what does it help? But if you contemplate the pain I'm feeling now, and this is actually not me, this is not mine. I don't really own that. This is not myself. This actually does make a difference. This is something that leads to letting go, to disenchantment, to fading away of passion, to turning away to freedom, liberation, release. Now, this is a meditation technique which leads to explicating you from dukkha, getting you out of dukkha. There's no safe, it's just no statement of doctrine, you can hang on to that, you can cling to that, you can argue about it, but it doesn't really get you out of suffering. But to contemplate, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself, and not in the abstract, but right into your experience. The body you are walking around with now, and then you try to make yourself really pretty because there's an event on Sunday evening or Saturday and in front of the mirror you look at your phone and you feel, no, I'm getting too old and I should be looking not so many wrinkles and just contemplate, no, this is not me, not my face, I don't own that face, I don't own that body, 
It's not a big problem when other people have wrinkles, no? or other people are old or something. And when we have a painful feeling, when we have an argument about different opinions, and my opinion is really not really me, it's not myself. It's not so serious. I can highly recommend that little mantra. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not myself. Not I, not me, not mine, not mine, not me, not I, not I, not mine, not me, not me, not mine, not I. <laughs> and all the problems fade away. Do you sometimes wonder why do I have so many problems in life? Why do I have to deal with all this hardship and why me? Yeah, why me? Because of me. It comes all from me. Without that little me there, all the problems would be gone. My son, my child, my daughter. Oh, oh you set you up for heaps of suffering. <laughs> heaps of suffering. My spouse. Oh, Good luck no, at court in the divorce, claiming that this is your spouse. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the judge will agree with that. No? This is a hard reality. It's not your spouse. I can walk away any moment. Nothing you can do. Now my parent, but they will die. We can observe that, how this creates so much suffering. Me, mine, I, ownership. Talking a lot over to you. Doesn't make any sense. Yes, please. Mickey Mouse. <laughs> It can be the caretaker of the house. You don't have to own it to do something with it. The same with the body. You don't have to be the owner to do something with it and to look after it. And certain things you have to be a caretaker. And like with your body, you know, the idea is not to say, oh, the body is not mine, so I just don't eat or I don't wash myself or something like that. There's a difference between a proud owner and then a mindful caretaker. Also, you see, you know, this is a very high Dhamma. They were ready you know, to realize complete liberation. And if you have a problem in your house, and then you have to get some engineers in, and they decide there's some structural problem, and that thing may crash, and if you don't do anything, 
this is not really the best opportunity to contemplate too much that everything is not mine. Now, this is more like where you have to practically address things. But even then, it can be helpful when you notice that you get too obsessed about it. Usually, if you apply these reflections, it usually doesn't mean that you immediately let go completely. It's very difficult. But even in a situation, there's some problem with the house, and you have to attend to that. I mean, the option is not that you have total excessive attachment identification with my house, or that you completely let go. What usually happens is maybe you can, with that reflection, make it a little bit weaker a little bit and then you're probably more capable of looking after it and most people can't imagine that and admittedly you know, talking about East Germany you know, that's a very known problem in socialism and if it belongs to everyone then no one really looks after it because people you know, usually have a strong egoistic interest to look after their own property but if it's just supposed to belong to everyone, then it tends to decay and the people don't bother much. So in that sense, on that, on that very basic level, ownership can have the effect that people are looking after it. But we are talking here about much higher Dhamma. And for example, the Buddha himself, after the experience of Nibbana under the Bodhi tree, he had no delusion of I, self, me, mine. He had no idea of my stepmother or my son or my ex-wife and so on. But he was supremely capable of looking after them. But it didn't come from an egoistic sense of, no, this is mine. And then I look after it just as an extension of my ego. The ownership is how you can get even a very egoistic person looking after something. Now, this is why even a very egoistic person may still be very nice to their children, because they just see them as an extension of their own ego, their own self. It's like looking after themselves. But you can also look after people not based on, on egoism, but based on the loving kindness and compassion. And someone who is completely free from any delusion of I, self, me and mine, will actuate their loving-kindness and compassion to the highest possible level. That's why the Buddha looked after the monks and nuns and male and female lay disciples and after the whole sasana in this supreme way which no one else can have than the Buddha. A person just based on this egoistic ownership thing the Buddha once actually outright said that to Venerable Ananda, it's not like he feels that I am leading the Sangha or the Sangha is mine and I. He doesn't have that. Just out of compassion he establishes the Sangha and out of compassion for the welfare and benefit of countless beings, he lays down all these vineyards, going into these minute details and how monks have to properly, in the bathroom, how you have to rinse and what you do with a rinsing vessel and this is the most exalted mind in the universe and he wasn't even reluctant to <laughs> occupy himself with that kind of banal questions and to teach the monks how to do this everyday things in the bathroom. But that's based now purely on compassion.
what you have in socialism, the people, normal people don't have that. And then if it's no private ownership, then the result is often people don't look after it. That's not what we are talking about here. And when people really let go of I, me, and mine, it's not just the government taking it away and saying it belongs to everyone, but they let go in their heart. And then the other qualities like particular loving kindness, compassion, also gratitude, respect to those who deserve respect, that is all there and they can act on that. So better fix whatever needs fixing then in your house. <laughs> I don't make it too complicated. Either sutta would be sufficient to attain full nibbana. In this case, uh, uh, there was one attainment of steam entry with the Dhammachaka Sutta, which is not just about the Eightfold Path, but about Four Noble Truths and craving as a cause of suffering. But other people may hear that Sutta and attain full Nibbana. And in this case, because then the Buddha had trained them, and when they listened to the not-self characteristic, they all attain full Nibbana. But someone where the uh, faculties are less mature, they may attain stream entry is always about the same, which is letting go. And in the Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta, the Buddha works mostly with craving as a source of suffering. He connects craving and suffering. Because if your mind can clearly see the relationship, then you will want to let go of craving. Because you understand it makes you suffer. Now here the Buddha clearly shows the connection between the delusion of I, me, and mine and suffering. These are the kind of maybe two main points. You can trace it back to craving or you can trace it back to the delusion of the delusion basically. The craving and avidya, panna and avidya. You can trace it back to any link in the dependent origination, but these are particular prominent and often emphasized. But each one is fully sufficient to give you the full result if the understanding is deep enough. It's not really something different. But it can help to approach it from a different angle. Once you notice and you observe and study in a craving and how that leads you into suffering, to let go of craving. Another occasion you observe how the delusion of I, me and mine and self is getting you into trouble and creates suffering. But if you let go of either, you will be liberated. Someone who completely lets go of the delusion of I, me, mine and self is liberated. And someone who lets fully go of craving as well. They will understand it mutually. Someone who understands the craving is suffering will also understand that the delusion of self is suffering and let go of both. But in practical terms, for your meditation, it can be one or the other may work better for you depending on your past life practice, your character, what is more convincing. But often it's also helpful at different times and using using both. But don't make it intellectually too complicated. It's actually intellectually it's not very complicated. You don't need to have a high IQ and a PhD to understand that the problem is not so okay, there's my my body, this form, 
and I regard that as myself and this is why I suffer so much when the body gets sick or if the body doesn't look the way I want it to look like or the body of your child which regard as yours but when he does his uh, scooter competitions he may crash his body and smash his lip and it's not your lip, you can't control that it's not your body you will feel that acutely you know, when he's doing that because you have no control of what's happening there. It's more as more likely to apply that very practically. If you watch one of the other kids doing the, what do you call that set, or this turning over, and I don't know how you call these things, on the, on the scooter, the kick scooter. Leaps. Leap. Leaping, when, when another kid is doing the leaps, you may find that quite enjoyable watching it. When your kid is doing the leaps, you will be very worried that he smashes his head or his lip or his teeth or anything. And that if it happens, there's a lot of suffering. Because you think this is your body, your form. It is meant to be very practical, pragmatic. It's not so much... But it can be intellectually also interesting and so on, and how you compare with the uh, sutta last year. No? But both these suttas are so profound, and you can spend years in contemplating them, and you can attain full nibbana with either of them. And more important is to apply it. Whenever it hurts, look where, where do you have the delusion of self? There's the I, me, and mine. Rather than blaming someone, usually we like to blame someone. This person is X is at fault that I suffer. Because if they were more kind, if they hadn't said this, if they had done that, if they hadn't done this, then I wouldn't suffer. This is an approach which doesn't really lead anywhere. This makes us angry and then we try to change other people and then we usually fail in that or are very limited in our success in changing others. Instead, in look, there's a delusion of I, me, and mine. Where do you hold on as this is mine? Okay. No. The Yatabut and Yandadasana is exactly not me, not mine, not self. No, seeing that. I mean, I'm just saying that now, and we can all think that or say that, but the Buddha talks about uh, seeing it you know, with uh, meditative, true wisdom. It's just an expression to, to show that it's not just thinking or talking about it or imagining it, you know, but uh, based on genuine insight. And the test for that is whether it leads to Nibbida and Viraga and Vimuti. If one truly sees it as it really is, with proper wisdom, then it should lead to disenchantment and dispassion. That's how you check it. But that's real vigil. You cannot define that, and you can define it, but this is not really how you can check it. The real check is whether it leads to dispassion and freedom release. Ne tang mama ne so hamas me, na me so atati, 
this is not mine, not my son, the son is not myself, the son is not me, I'm not my son, my spouse, it's actually not my spouse, it's not me, it's not mine, my car, this is not mine, this is not me, I am not this, this is not myself. Now you said as a contemplation. Okay, thanks for your patience.